You're listening to teaching from the Word of God, provided by Black Forest Chapel. This is the church where you will find biblical teaching and authentic worship with family and friends. We are located in Black Forest near Monument and just north of Colorado Springs, Colorado. We invite you to join us this Sunday. Find our location, worship times, and more at blackforestchapel.org. Good morning. This is Scott Barbie. At this moment in time, I'm in my home, in my office, preaching into an audio recording. This is the first time I've ever preached in my own office with nobody around me. Every other time I've preached with people in the audience in the church looking at me as I give the message. However, this is rather new because of the COVID-19 virus. The recommendation is that people stay home so we're not convenient in church. Instead, uh, we are staying home trying to get healthy, stay healthy. And so I am preaching the word to you, um, but uh, I'm preaching to an empty room. However, according to Hebrews chapter 12, each of us, as we live this Christian life, each of us is surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. So I realize that even though I'm alone, I'm not really alone. Of course, this sermon will be online, so I know that people will be listening to it. But more importantly, I realized that the great body of faith, the people who are part of this great body of faith, surround us, all of us. They see what we're doing in some way we don't fully understand. There's a lot of prayer and work that's being done in the spiritual realm, even as we exist in the physical realm. Uh, And this is what the author of Hebrews talks about in detail in chapter 11. In chapter 11, there's quite a discussion of the people who have preceded us in death, people of faith, the Israelites, who showed and demonstrated faith, even though it wasn't very apparent uh, who the object of their faith is or the subject of their faith. All they knew is that by faith they had to walk out uh, in the uncertainty of the world and do God's will. Uh, That's what we read in Hebrews chapter 11. Verse 1, now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. The author goes on to talk about the ancients that the Jewish people knew so well, and we as Christians know them too, as we study the Bible. He talks about Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham. He spends a great deal of time talking about Abraham since he was the father of the the covenant. God made his covenant through Abraham. Then the author looks at Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. We're studying the life of Joseph in the sermon series. He then moves on to Moses, the person who God used to bring the law to the Israelite people. And then the author mentions he simply doesn't have enough time to talk about all the other heroes of faith And he mentions that in verse 32. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies." Women received back their dead, raised to life again. 
Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and ill-treated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts in mountains, and in caves and holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. It's quite a list of individuals here who demonstrated great faith, and that's in the time before Christ, in the time of Christ and afterwards, We have individuals who are going out into the world, preaching the word, suffering, dying for that, being persecuted. Some aren't. Not every Christian, not every believer of God gets persecuted, but some do, and they uphold the faith. And so here we are in year 2020, so 2000, close to 2000 years after Christ, and we are living this life of faith. We might be alone listening to the sermon or sermons, reading the Bible on our own, praying. Uh, If you find yourself alone and you're discouraged or disheartened by that, I would hope that this sermon out of the book of Hebrews chapter 12 will rest well with your souls because you are not really alone. According to chapter 12, verse 1, we learn that we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. We are never really alone, and that should give us a great deal of comfort. Even though we might be alone, the ancients, those who preceded us in death, whether it's the Israelites of old or the Christians in the church uh, era, the the church of Jesus Christ, uh, we form this body of faith that is real, it's vibrant, it's active, God upholds it, and so it is good to be a Christian And as Pastor Mike said last week, there's nothing to worry about. If God feeds the 200 million plus birds out there in the world, surely he's going to take care of us. All we have to do is be people of prayer. And this book of Hebrews is centered on individuals, Christians, who are suffering persecution and who are being tempted to leave the faith and go back to what might be a more comfortable arrangement for them. If you're not familiar with the book of Hebrews, then what we have is a group of Jews who converted to Christianity, but now they're suffering persecution, most likely from family, friends, neighbors, business partners, and others who um, do not, are not happy that they moved away from Judaism and into Christianity. And so they're suffering some sort of persecution. They don't like it. Most likely it's impacting relationships, businesses, finances. And so the temptation is to go back and to make it easy on themselves. And this is what the author of Hebrews is cautioning them not to do. And he cautions them several times in lengthy, um, in lengthy ways to let them know when you become a Christian, there is not an option to go back. 
And if you try to exercise that option, you have to understand what's, what that's going to mean. And in Hebrews chapter 6, he gets very specific. Uh, so he is doing everything he can to help people who are struggling. And he uses firm words, but truthful words as well, that it would be better to stay in the faith even if we suffer as he lists in Hebrews chapter 11, even if we are thrown in prison, even if we go about the world being flogged or persecuted in some way, that is much better than leaving the faith. In an effort to wrap up this mighty letter of Hebrews, he tells the people they're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, and therefore we should be throwing off everything that's going to hinder our faith And we should cast aside the sin that so easily entangles. You and I need to do the same thing. This isn't just for Christians who are suffering in those intense ways. These are for Christians of any generation, because we all suffer the the common issues of the world. We're all uh, dealing with uh, sin issues in our own heart, the world, the flesh, and the devil are constantly uh, going at us. And so we have to resist the temptations to uh, flee the faith, uh, to combine the world with their faith. And so this, this Christian life of ours isn't as easy as we would hope it to be. Because the author knows that, because God knows that, he gives us many helps in terms of scripture, in terms of prayer, in terms of each other. That's why we form the church. And even though we are apart at this moment in in America because of the virus and the encouragements to stay home, we are still very much connected to the body of Christ. So now we have to ask ourselves the question, what exactly are the sins that we need to set aside because they're hindering us. Well, sin comes in many forms. And at this moment in time, I don't know what your sin issue is. But as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, no sin has seized you except what is common to man. So Satan doesn't tailor-make sins for us specifically. There's only a, a group of sins out there, and and some of us will suffer one type of sin, whereas another person doesn't. And whatever that person suffers from, we might not. But there, it's the common list of sins that we usually fall under. I'm going to take a guess that at this moment in time, what a lot of us are suffering from, uh, either being tempted to do or or we're actually engaged in the sin, is the sin of unbelief. The sin of unbelief usually is comes about because of fear. And in this time in America, we're watching stocks plummet. We're watching businesses close. Maybe not shut down, just close for a time, but that means employees aren't working and therefore they're not getting paid. Or if we own our own business, we're watching patrons or clients uh, disappear, not come in, and therefore that's impacting our ability to or finance our own lives. Uh, perhaps we're concerned about the virus itself, and will I get it, and what will it do to me? And the world seems to be in a bit of upheaval. It seems like it might be settling down since there's more information coming 
to us that's more of a positive nature rather than completely negative. The, the runs on the store might still be going on, I'm not sure, uh, but that might be lessening up as well. So we might be getting into the new reality of this, and it doesn't look as bleak, but still there might be the concern and the deep fears. And the problem with giving in to fears, it leads us to unbelief. And that's the last thing we want to do is give in to unbelief. Unbelief is so bad that it, uh, as Charles Spurgeon talks about from his his sermon in Numbers 14, yeah, it's, it's so bad that it leads us to leave the Lord because we don't believe he will really make good on his promises. So what do I mean by that? Well, let me give you a brief uh, synopsis of Numbers chapter 14. In Numbers chapter 14, the people are about to enter into the promised land. They've been waiting 400 years for this. God brought them out through amazing miracles from the land of Egypt. God continued to show his faithfulness as he parted the Red Sea, as he provided water, as he provided food, as he showed himself visibly in the cloud or the pillar of fire, as he presented to them through Moses the law, as he showed his mercy when they sinned greatly by making the golden calf. God still offered his protection and his love to them. And now they're at the border of the promised land. They're about to go in and take it over because God has set it up for them but because they received a bad report from ten of the spies that were sent in, they buckle under their fear, and they decide they want to go back to Egypt. They ignore the good report from Caleb and Joshua. They only listen to the bad report. They give in to that fear, even though God demonstrated his love and care and protection and miracles. They forget that, and how easily we forget, isn't it? We forget so easily what God has done in the past. And by forgetting, they give in to fear. By giving in to fear, they give in to unbelief, and they don't believe that God's going to come through this time. They're even willing to choose new leadership to take them back to Egypt. What a shameful thing to even think about, much less make plans to do. And at that point, God has had enough. He doesn't destroy them completely, but he's had enough, and he makes them journey in the desert for 40 years as a punishment for the sin. Here's what Charles Spurgeon says about that time in Israel's history. Quote, Strive with all diligence to keep out that monster unbelief. It so dishonors Christ that he will withdraw his visible presence if we insult him by indulging in it. Among hateful things, it is most to be abhorred. Jesus is the son of the highest and has unbounded wealth. It is shameful to doubt omnipotence and distrust all sufficiency. End quote. What a great insight from Spurgeon. You and I can use that same insight. We can use the lessons from Scripture so that you and I don't fall under unbelief. And if that is the sin we're dealing with, then what we need to do, according to the author of Hebrews, is to um, throw that off and 
make sure that that sin doesn't entangle us. Now, how do you actually do that? Are there practical ways you can do that? We, we like to provide application in our sermons so that you know what to do with these passages that you're reading. Is there any practical way that I can share with you on throwing off the sin? I could tell you that you should pray more, and indeed we should all do that. I could tell you to read the Bible more. Again, we should all be doing that. I could tell you to attend church more. Uh, You might be a faithful attender, but what do you do when you're stuck at home? What do you do when you feel more isolated? It's one of the ploys of Satan to try to isolate you and make you feel that you really are alone and no one's around you, no one can help, and that's simply not true. As I mentioned before, you're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, you are never alone, and God is more close to you when you feel alone than, uh, than otherwise. So what do you do, in a practical sense, to throw off the sin of unbelief, the, the fears that might be mounting? I would say prayer is the best defense. I really don't know of any other defense out there that's better than prayer. Now, we, we get a lot of encouragement by calling people, emailing, texting. Those are great ways to stay connected, and I encourage us to do that. But at some point, it's going to be you and God. And in those times, I pray that your prayer life is increasing by leaps and bounds. It was a time when my wife and I were struggling financially about five years ago. We had a rental home. Things weren't going well. And we were paying two mortgages at the same time with no end in sight. Uh, we had our eighth child, and so there were hospital bills to deal with. And there were other... Um, bills that were coming in, and it just didn't seem to stop. The bills uh, just seemed to be coming in over and over again, and we didn't know how to pay everything. And our credit cards were mounting up, not because of reckless spending, but because that's how we were affording food. So putting groceries on the credit card was not what we wanted to do, but most of my income was going to supporting the two homes, plus paying off all these bills. And so the credit card bills were mounting as we We had to buy the things we need, mainly to live. Uh, That was the only time, one and only time, where financially we were um, watching debt grow and we, we didn't know how to pay it off. And there was just one time when the temptation crept into my heart to disbelieve that God really was going to help. And I'll tell you, it was a horrible feeling. I hope I never feel it again. It lasted for about a minute. Not that I was clocking it, but uh, it it hit me like a huge wave, knocked me over. I'm I'm floundering in this this massive water surge of unbelief and asking myself, should I disbelieve God's goodness? Uh, the the temptation went just a bit farther that maybe I should because He's not coming through for me. And the only thing I could do at that point is pray to God to help me overcome my unbelief. I felt like the man who was talking with Jesus, and the man expressed to Jesus that he believes, but help me overcome my unbelief, and that's where I was at. You know, after after a time, uh, during during that uh, difficulty, you know, within the next few minutes, I told myself, no, I, I can't do this. I can't give in to unbelief. But the temptation was there, and I had to fight against it with prayer. That's the only way I knew how. Because there weren't, there wasn't anyone who could really help me uh, overcome my financial problems. Uh, fellow Christians could 
quote scripture to me, but how far was that going to go? I was reading scripture. I knew it. Uh, the only thing that really became my sure defense was prayer. And uh, true to form, God didn't speak to me in a booming voice from heaven. Rather, there was the quiet assurance that he's still there despite what's going on. And as I look back upon it now, I realized that the it was more of the the world, the flesh, and the devil that was crowding in at that moment in time. Had I given in to it, it would have been a shameful thing indeed. As Spurgeon says, it is shameful to doubt omnipotence and to distrust all sufficiency. God did prove himself faithful. We, over a period of two years, paid off all the debts. We sold the home. We became... Uh, debt-free from some student loans, from credit card debt. It, it took a while, but uh, that's usually how God works. He seems to work on a scale of months and years and decades uh, versus the minutes and hours and days we would prefer. I would say I learned a lot about, about myself. Um, at times I'm shameful that I even thought about it for a minute, but temptations come without us asking. The thing to do is to fight against it with prayer. That was the sin that was hindering me, that was entangling me. The only thing I could do was cast it off, and I cast it off with prayer. And that's what I would encourage you to do if you find yourself in the surging waters of unbelief. If they have bowled you over and you don't know how you're going to make it, keep in close contact with the Lord through prayer. Oswald Chambers constantly says throughout his book, My Utmost for His Highest, he constantly says, be rightly related to God. And that's what we need to do. You probably hear a phone in the background since I'm preaching at home. (laughs) Real life sometimes crowds in. Sounds like my wife answered it. All right, so you and I have the best offense in the Lord. We have a good offense in that we can do something proactively through prayer. And then we have to exercise the Christian virtue of patience. Let us throw off the sin that so easily entangles. But the author is not done yet in giving us encouragements, because at the in the second part of verse 1, he says, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. If you and I are going to run the race marked out for us, then that means we have to persevere. If you've ever done any sort of racing, whether it's uh, racing uh, in a track and field event, bike race racing, whatever type of race, you realize that there's a course and there's competitors. uh, Not necessarily, but usually there's competitors. There's a start line and then there's a finish line. And you have to run the race. And most of us get off to a good start. There's a lot of energy, a lot of enthusiasm, The gun goes off. There's some other signal that the race has started. So we start running. And figuratively speaking, we start moving in this life of ours. And whenever you start out, the energy is what carries you forward. And the finish line doesn't look too far away. But at some point in the race, we have to start negotiating with our bodies to continue on because our body is saying, I want to stop, I'm tired, I'm done with this, what's the point? And we experience quite a bit of that in this life. But as we continue going and we find some reserves uh, for our strength, 
and our um, ability to finish, you know, we pull on those reserves and that gets us even closer to the finish line. But it becomes a real struggle to actually finish. Would it not be a shameful thing indeed for us to see the finish line in sight and for us to say, no, I'm done. I, I don't want to finish. I've already gone three quarters of the way, but why finish? I, I'm almost there. The finish line is uh, within within sight. Any reasonable person would say, you've already done 80, 90% of the race. Why not finish? Even if you have to walk there, at least finish the race. Say that you did it. That's why we persevere. That's where perseverance comes in. And that's where it's most important. We don't usually tell a person to persevere at the beginning of a race. We have to tell a person to persevere as they are thoroughly in it, and there's really no other choice except to continue on or to give up. And most of us, I would say just about everybody, doesn't like the idea of giving up when they know that they should continue forward. So the author gives encouragement here for us to persevere. We're in a race, this race called life, especially as Christians, we're in this Christian life, persevering, regardless of our circumstances, persevering is the thing we have to do. But the author makes it a point to say that the race that we're running is marked out for us. Like any race, the course is always laid out, and whether it's a course around a track, whether it's a straight course, a marathon type of race, it's been marked out for us. There are markers that are telling us that this is the course to follow and go on. Usually there are individuals at certain spots along the course giving encouragement, um, helping in some way. This race is the race that we travel on because we were part of it and we're trying to get to the finish line. But that means that somebody did the work ahead of time to set a course and mark it out for us. As we read in the book of Hebrews, this race has been marked out for us, and if we asked who it is, the answer would be God. God has already marked out our days. He's already marked out the course. All we have to do is run. All we have to do in this Christian life of ours is to live. So how do you actually do that? As you are going about your daily life, how do you run this race that's marked out for you? My my suggestion here is going to sound so simple, it's probably going to be too obvious. You wake up in the morning. You praise the Lord. You go about whatever day you're going to have, going to work, whether you work from home, whether you work outside of the home, whether your work is more of a a home educator, whether your work is working for a corporation or a small business, whether you're self-employed, you get up and you go about your day, praising the Lord, thanking Him, praying to Him, going along the way. At the end of your day, you come home, uh, you do your family activities. Before you go to bed, you thank the Lord for your day. That's the mundane uh or not mundane, more routine aspect of living. You wake up, praise the Lord, do what God has set for you to do, and then you praise the Lord at the end of the day. I think it's just about that simple. I don't know how to make it any more simple than that. What else has God really asked you to do? 
what we tend to do is we feel the weight of all these decisions and responsibilities, and it's our job to do it. And if we don't do it, then our lives are going to crumple under. And, and how are we going to manage? How are we going to survive and live? How are we going to take care of our kids? That's where the burden really comes upon us. And that's where we feel the weight of responsibility crushing us that leads to some level of fear and maybe unbelief. I recommend just take every day one at a time, and Jesus even talks about this. But as you take your day one at a time, we take it through prayer. God is never tired of hearing our prayers. At one point, I thought that he must be. After all, if I kept on saying the same common types of things to somebody like my wife, she would wonder if I'm a robot. But in reality, God wants to hear you praise him, use psalms, use other forms of prayer to God to let him know you love him and, and because he cares for you. Repeat scripture back to him because he gave us scripture to use in that way. And really believe in your heart and your mind that he cares for you every single day. This becomes such a help for us that it's... It's in many ways simple to run the race, even though day-to-day decisions can be hard, but constantly giving God the praise and praying to him for the things you need becomes the only job we have to do. And so I would recommend to you that you do that. If you find yourself not praying as much because you're worried, well, start praying. Start thanking God and giving thanks to him for the things you have. There's really not much else we would have to do in this life. I realize that there are big responsibilities some of you have. You have to work out financial issues, issues with insurance, issues with employers or employees. All of that is what we go through. Uh, but do it in a in an attitude and a in a mode of prayer. And you might be surprised how God starts helping you out um, as as you patiently work through each day. So that's what we read at the end of verse 1. Let us run with perseverance to race marked out for us. It's been marked out for us. God knows the course. He knows our lives. He knew it before we even got started. And so all we have to do is journey on it. And then the author transitions us to the reason why we're doing all of this. And he transitions in verse 2. The reason why we run with perseverance is so that we can fix our eyes on Jesus. Now, this is a wonderful verse as it starts uh, to explain what the author has put forward to us in verse 1. If we're really running a race, then there's a finish line. Usually you can't see the finish line if it's a longer race. Let's say it's a marathon, 26 miles. There's no way you're going to see the end of the course. You really can't see the finish marker. But in this Christian life of ours, we get to. The finish line, the marker, is Christ. But it gets better than that. As we go along this life, we see plenty of of markers of who Christ is as we make make our way on this course. He's always there. He's like the person at a marker on the course who's cheering you on, who's giving you encouragement. You run some more, you get to another marker, and there's Christ again, encouraging you on, keep on going, 
keep the faith. You and I have such a wonderful example and person in Christ that we're never, we never have to feel alone. He is, he is our finish marker, so we fix our eyes on him. And we do that because he's not only our Lord and Savior, but he's also the author and perfecter of the faith that we profess. What does it mean for Christ to be the author, and what does it mean for him to be the perfecter? As the author, he's the one who structured and organized and made our faith. As a Christian believer, because you have faith, you can thank the Lord because he's the one who made that faith. Now, I can't say I fully understand how how he does that, how he's the author. I only know that all things begin with Christ, and therefore it starts with him, and the faith I profess as a believer comes from him. He is the author, and it's not too often that we get to meet an author of something so significant. Perhaps you have met a particular author, a famous author who's written many books that are popular. Maybe you met this person, you asked for this author to sign your book, and it's on your shelf, and you, you have some memories about that. It's not every, uh, every uh, person who can meet a famous author. But that person comes and goes, and, uh, and it just forms a little part of your life. But here... In the Christian life, not only do we get to meet the author in prayer, but he is also our brother. We are going to co-reign with him. We are co-heirs with Christ. He is the beginning and the end and the alpha and the omega. So what better person to get to know than to know the Savior Jesus, which is why we fix our eyes on him and which is why we persevere and run the race marked out for us, uh, which is why we throw off the sin that so easily entangles. God has done everything for us from the beginning to the end. All we have to do is keep our eyes fixed on him. He is the goal why should we look to the left and or to the right and get distracted? Why should we find ourselves looking to another guide when the only guide we need, who actually authored our faith, is the very one who loves us and died for our sins? And that's where the idea of perfection comes in. Jesus is the author of our faith. He's also the perfecter of our faith. Now, this word perfection uh, is related to the word finished, When Jesus was on the cross and he breathed his last, he shouted out, it is finished. This word finished is related to the word perfection. Oftentimes when we think of perfection, we think of something that has been and always will be perfect. And that is a definition of it. But another way of thinking about it is something can be made perfect. Something is in a state of imperfection. And then when it is finally completed, it is in a state of perfection. So take uh, an artist who paints a picture. They first start out with an empty canvas and start drawing outlines of the picture that they want. Or maybe they simply apply the brush, the wet brush, to the canvas, and they start laying out a picture. If you've ever watched Bob Ross's uh, videos, it's extraordinary how he starts with a white canvas, and suddenly, after the show is done, he has this very nice-looking painting. 
At the beginning of it, it was imperfect because it wasn't finished. It, that doesn't mean it had flaws and negative aspects. It simply wasn't done. But as he, Bob Ross or other artists, start applying the paint to the canvas, perhaps making mistakes along the way, but using those mistakes in some other way to make the picture uh, what he wants it to be, he comes up with a finished product, and he could stand back and say, it is now done, it is perfect. Perfect doesn't mean what we usually think, and that is, it has no flaws. Perfection means it is now whole, it is complete, it is the way that I want it to be. Let me apply this to the Christian life. You and I are not in a state of perfection. Right now, we will be in a state of perfection later. We will be in a state where we have no flaws and no sin issues, but we're not there yet. We know it's going to happen, but we're not quite finished or perfected yet. And the only way we can be is to journey through this life in faith. This is why it's so important to run the race marked out for us and to persevere. If you and I give up, if you and I give in, to sins that entangle us, we will never get to the finish line, and therefore we will never be perfect as Christ wants us to be perfect. It is the journey through the difficulties of life that make us finished, where God can look at us and say, this person looks like Jesus Christ, my son. Jesus is the author of our faith, which means we get to journey out in this life and persevere but the, at the end of our lives, he is also the perfecter of our faith. Our faith will be finished. We will be in the image of Christ because of the journey we went through. What a great way to help us understand how God is constantly working through us to make us more perfect. If you find yourself rattled by current events, if you're wondering how are you going to recover financially from this? My encouragement is to look to Christ, the finish line, and know that even now he is perfecting you to the person he wants you to be. And he has less of a concern uh, about the things you're concerned about because he already knows how he's going to solve them. Uh, you're concerned because you have to be, uh, but we don't want you to be anxious about the things around you, as Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 4. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, with prayer and thanksgiving, submit your requests to God. That's what our encouragement is to those of you who are struggling in some way. And that's what the author of Hebrews is telling his people here. Jesus Christ is the author and perfecter of your faith. And as a result, we can turn our eyes more on him and less upon our issues. And the author helps us understand that as he finishes up verse 2 and says, Christ, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, going in a chain, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Why do we persevere in this life of ours? We should persevere in this life of ours for the same reason that Jesus did. So the Son of God emptied himself of his glory. He came to earth, born just like we were born, suffered the 
circumstances of life that we suffer with. But he had a joy set before him, and he knew what that joy was, and he was willing to endure all the sufferings of the cross to get to the finish line. And by doing so, he shamed the very cross he was hung on. As you and I journey on this life, and there are sins that are trying to entangle us, and we pray our way through it, and we persevere in this race marked out for us, we can look back upon that sin that was trying to entangle us, and we can scorn the shame of that sin, because we had a God who helped us through it. The sin was not able to entangle us as Satan wanted it to, so we scorn the shame of that sin, we endure the hardships, we bear our cross, and at one point we will sit down in the presence of God. Just as Christ sat down at the right hand of his Father, we will be in the presence of the Beloved, which is what God wants us, where God wants us to be. We have all sorts of wonderful things laid out for us, and the author and perfecter of our faith has already done it. We just have to journey in this life of ours. And because of that, it's good for us to consider, it's what the author says in verse 3, to consider Jesus, who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Bear in mind, the author is talking with Christians who are being persecuted for their faith. And there are many people in this world who have converted Christianity, and they're being persecuted for their faith by sinful men. So it does happen in this world just like it happened back then. You and I might not feel it in quite the same way, but we can still consider Jesus who endured such opposition. Whatever opposition we're feeling right now, it is good for us to tune our minds to the way Christ lived. He was willing to suffer opposition, so we will have to do that at times as well. And we do this so that we don't grow weary and lose heart. It's a good way to end this passage, because that's that's the temptation right there, to grow weary, I can't do this anymore, to lose heart, to give in to fears. That's the temptation. It's always there. But if we think less about our circumstances, more about the Lord, then we'll find that that doesn't happen, or at least it doesn't happen often, because we have someone who deeply cares for us. What we need to do is focus on Him and not on ourselves. I want this to be an encouragement to you, but I do feel like I have to talk in the way that the author of Hebrews talks, and that is to provide encouragement, but with some level of warning here. I wouldn't want any of you listening to the sermon to find yourself scared and disbelieving the Lord. As I mentioned earlier on, I dipped into that just a bit, and and what a horrible feeling that was. I wouldn't want you to go through that either. Rather, stay firm in the faith, persevere well, pray through it, be accountable, reach out to friends. It's all good. the, the good things we need to do as a body of believers, but to remind ourselves that we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, to consider Christ, who endured opposition just like we are, to understand that we can scorn the shame of the sin that tries to entangle us just as Jesus scorned the shame of the cross. What good helps we have in being a Christian? 
we are never alone, and therefore it helps us to persevere in this race. To end this sermon, let me give you an illustration of what it's like to run with perseverance when you really want to give up. This illustration comes from C.S. Lewis's story, The Horse and His Boy. It's part of the Chronicles of Narnia. I still love the story. I read these books when I was a boy in, in elementary school, and I still listen to them on audio. And in The Horse and His Boy, we have a young boy named Shasta. He's pretty much a slave in what is um, the country of Kalorman, uh, a country that uh, accepts slavery as a way of life. Uh, he's supposed to be the more or less the ward of this old fisherman, um, because the young boy uh, was lost at sea. Uh, he was actually kidnapped and then lost at sea, shows up on the shore. The fisherman takes care of him, but treats him very poorly. Well, Shasta is able to escape. Uh, there's a horse, and Shasta and the horse, and, and the horses of Narnia can talk, if you're not familiar with Narnia. So the animals in, in Narnia can talk, and so this horse happens to be a prisoner in this area of Kalorman, too. So Shasta and Bree, that's the horse's name, agree to escape together. So they do that, and they're trying to get to Narnia, back to freedom. So a lot of adventures along the way, and towards the end of the adventures, uh, Shasta, who's carrying news for a king uh, that he's about to be attacked, that Shasta comes with the news. Uh, he's, he's supposed to deliver it to the king. And so they get to this, this waypoint. It's a, a little uh, house that a, a hermit has. And the horses are spent because they just run a mile try, trying to escape uh, a lion who showed up all of a sudden. Uh, Shasta's traveling companion, her name is Erevis, is wounded by the lion, who happens to be Aslan, uh, the one who's orchestrated and all of this and has marked the race out for them. And, and so Shasta and the horses and Erevis come into the hermit's home, and the hermit tells Shasta, you're not done yet. I need to take care of the horses and Erevis who's wounded. You have a message you have to take to the king. So go through the other side of, of my home, open the gate and run because I know that if you continue to run in that direction, you'll meet the king, deliver the message and the king can protect his kingdom from this invading group of, of, um, soldiers. And Shasta can't believe what he's hearing. He's spent as well. He's fatigued. He doesn't want to persevere. He wants, he wants the, the race to end. And so you can, as you read it or listen to the story, you can hear the anguish in his voice. Run. I have to run again. And the hermit has nothing else to say to him except, yes, you have to run again. So Shasta does that. He, has to set aside the fatigue, set aside the disappointment, and he has to run the race that's marked out for him. And he delivers the message, everyone is safe. Um, but you and I are at times like Shasta. We get to a point in our life where we say, I I'm just tired, I'm done in, I I'm, I'm ready to be done. And God tells us, no, actually, you're not done. I need you to continue on for a little while longer to finish the race and persevere. Easy to say, easy to believe, 
really difficult to do. If you find yourself at a point like Shasta where you're saying to yourself, I am tired of running, isn't God done with me yet? And God says, no, I need you to continue for a little bit longer uh, so that my will for you and others can be completed, can be perfected, can be finished. Then the only thing we can do is say, yes, Lord, I will do that. Yes, Lord, send me. In this Christian life of ours, set aside the sin that entangles, persevere the race that's marked out for you, and then fix your eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Let's pray. Lord, it's a strange time in our country as I preach to an empty room, as people listen instead of attending church. Uh, it's a, in some states, in some cities, it's very quiet as there's a lockdown as we try to contain this virus. Plenty of fears. We know that unbelievers have a fear that leads to irrational behavior. As believers, we sometimes give in to that fear, and it might make us practice a little bit of unbelief in the way we act or think or what we say. Lord, I pray that a passage like what we read out of Hebrews 12 really helps us to overcome some of these hurdles in life, that we no longer find ourselves as concerned as we once were. You know the beginning from the end. You've marked the race out for us. All we have to do is run. Lord, we don't make light of the the issues of the day, whether it's the virus or our financial troubles, but we also need to put it in context of what we know about you, who you are, your holiness, your love. Uh, it's getting up in the morning. It's going to bed at night. It's going about our day, giving you the thanks and praying to you. What else can we do, Lord? We don't want to slip into a type of unbelief, uh, but neither do we want to ignore the reality around us. So, Lord, in that tension-filled way, uh, we try to balance things out, but may the balance weigh heavier on the side of persevering, fixing our eyes on Christ, trusting and believing. I pray for the body of Christ here at Black Forest Chapel. Help people not to give in to fear, but to find themselves trusting in you more with each day. God, you are good. You are faithful and loving. Help us to bring in those qualities into our lives as well. And we pray pray all of this in the great name of Christ, our Lord. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this teaching from the Word of God. If you don't have a church home, we invite you to visit Black Forest Chapel in Black Forest, Colorado, near Monument and just north of Colorado Springs. You'll find biblical teaching and authentic worship in an environment that feels like family and friends. Get directions and more information at blackforestchapel.org.